This is an ABC podcast. What was supposed to be a symbol of diversity and inclusivity has divided an NRL club, fans and many more. Manly Sea Eagles players will wear a rainbow jersey in a match this Thursday, but seven players won't be on the field because they refuse to play in it. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a minute, we're going to get into this controversy that's forced an apology from the club's coach and caused a lot of concern in the LGBTQIA plus community. You're going to hear from a queer sports person. And it's back to work for our political leaders. A whole bunch has gone down in Canberra today. We'll fill you in. First, though. Hack. It can be quite an emotionally draining profession, um, just with people and their expectations. On Triple J. In pretty much every primary school classroom in the country, there's always a kid who's dreaming about being a vet when they grow up. Maybe that was you. What better job is there than being an animal doctor? You get to cuddle the cutest pets, help them get better, make people happy too. But the reality of being a vet is a lot different. Staff shortages, massive workloads and stress have led to really, really high suicide rates for vets. Are you a vet, especially in a rural or remote area? How tough is it? I want to hear from you. You can message in 0439 Look, it's not all bad news. Erin Semler's been in central Queensland speaking with a bunch of young vets. Here's her story. It was produced by Angel Parsons. <laughs> We can go from, I'll be out preg testing in the morning and then come back and I know one day I've come back and had to do a caesarean on a dog. Yeah, just a quiet day in the life of a country vet. Dr Brini Brooks landed her first gig as a vet in a North Queensland town. And after 18 months there, I just thought, you know, I was sick of being on call every second night, every second weekend. The hours were massive. Joining a bigger team in central Queensland has really helped things, like being able to actually have a life outside of work. Being part of such a big team, it's been great. The Clermont Vet Clinic looks after cattle, horses and small animals. Usually the girls are sort of kicking me out the door, especially Dr Keeley. She tells me to go home because I've already done my hours. So um, the whole team's pretty supportive of everyone here and making sure that we are sticking to that nine and a half hours a day. Dr Bruni really looks up to clinically Dr Tess Salmon. After 17 years in the industry, Dr Tess knows how stressful it is to be a vet. One vet in Australia commits suicide every 12 weeks, so it's real. You can't deny the statistics. You can imagine, right? Breaking bad news, making tough decisions, pretty heartbreaking. And Dr Tess reckons this burnout and compassion fatigue is way too common. So we all know people that have succumbed and, and they're the ones that, you know, have got to the very end of that journey. A lot of us get a bit way along and, and get some help, luckily. Bronwyn Orr is the president of the Australian Veterinary Association. She says vets are at risk of suicide at a rate 1.7 to four times higher than the general population. It is a big issue and it's something that we're very keen on to to get further support for. The mental um, well-being aspect is is a symptom of of a broader problem and that's something that we need to look at, which is how the profession runs, what that looks like and how can we improve that. Dr Orr says a national vet shortage worsened by the pandemic hadn't helped. For example, in 2018, um, when we did a survey of vacancies and how long it took to fill them, it was about 34% of veterinary vacancies took over six months to fill. And when we did that same survey last year in 2021, 52% of all jobs advertised took more than six months, with some of them, um, about a third of them taking more than 12 months. 
While rural and regional areas are being smashed by these shortages, Clermont is bucking the trend. We're a fairly small town, under 3,000 people, but we've got seven vets here and it's just fantastic. I think I think the problem is everyone just wants support in, in whatever you do. And with the vet industry, you've got to have a critical mass. And then if you have enough vets, then that attracts more vets because you've got people to share the load with. And rural vet practice can be incredibly intense. An experienced vet doesn't just appear magically. We have to invest in the in the young ones. Yeah, and one of those is Keely Aegis. The first couple of months were tough. It's a huge adjustment from university. Um, they def like they set you up as best they can, but there's nothing in comparison to actually, you know, starting a job that has this kind of workload. Um, but it has been the best time. Well worth it. Um, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Monica Chinchilla grew up an hour north of Sydney on the New South Wales Central Coast. But Dr Salmon's infectious enthusiasm lured her to Clermont. There's more pubs than I was expecting on the amount of people, but um, that's not a bad thing. It's a serious career move the 26-year-old is proud of. It can be quite an emotionally draining profession, um, just with people and their expectations and sometimes delivering bad news can be quite upsetting, but um, then you have really good days as well. And these young vets actually have their own solutions to some of the problems we're talking about. Drawing more veterinarians into regional areas could potentially be solved with some type of subsidies, such as what they have um, in doctors and nursing and teachers. Dr Orr from the Vets Association says it'll continue to push for government support, including wage incentives for critical shortage areas and university fee waiving. If a doctor goes rural for sort of three or four years, their hex fees for their degree are completely forgiven. We would like to see something similar for veterinarians and the New Zealand government offers that for veterinarians and have done so for more than a decade. A Federal Department of Agriculture spokesman said it was not aware of any proposed policies and financial incentives alone were not the solution. The department said it was working closely with the vets to discuss options for improving conditions in the industry. Despite the doom and gloom though, Dr Salmon is optimistic. The younger vets we have in our practice, well, um, I'm just so proud of them. They, they make me so proud every day. They just get in and have a go and I think the future for rural veterinary practice is very bright indeed. Hack on Triple J. Erin Semler and Adrian Parsons with that story. And remember, if you do need someone to speak with, Lifeline is always there. You can get them on 13 11 14. We're getting so many messages come through on this. Laura says, don't forget the vet nurses. We cop at something shocking. I left the industry after six years because the toxic environment left me burnt out. Someone else says, I'm a vet in Newcastle. I always dreamed of being a country vet, but after two and a half years in rural practice, I was having severe anxiety every time I heard the after-hours phone ring. I'm now five years out and have finally found a truly sustainable workplace for me. That's great. Somebody else says, growing up with a father who was a vet, the hardest thing about being a vet is having to euthanise animals. And somebody says, I'm a vet. We do so much in one day. Emergency surgery, behavioural issues, anaesthesia. We don't have the support staff and specialisation that human medicine has. Well, let's get into this a bit more. And with us now is Dr Nadine Hamilton. She's a psychologist. She works specifically with vets and she's even started a campaign. It's called Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. It's a great name. Nadine, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much for having having us. You, and I guess, yeah, Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet is a charity, a registered charity. Right, okay. And you've done a fair bit yeah. of research into the mental well-being of vets in Australia as well. A lot, Lots of studies talking to people. How bad is this situation? 
Um, absolutely. So I did uh, formal doctoral research for six and a half years. And I guess just to add on to that, it's not just in Australia. It is a global issue. So we're seeing the same things globally, but different rates of suicide, um, you know, compared to the, uh, the general community. Um, it is, yeah, very serious. So we're looking, you know, in Australia up to four times more likely for a veterinarian to take their life as opposed to the general population, wow. twice as likely as other health professionals. Um, and it's fairly similar across the globe with those rates. So, you know, up to four times is sort of the highest that we've seen. And I like, you, you noticed one of the comments, I think, from Laura when she was saying, don't forget about the vet nurses. Um, and I agree, we just don't have formal research um, statistically on that, which is something that I'm actually working on. Right, so okay. And a very big and Nadine, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Do you reckon there's a no, really sorry. romanticized idea of what it means to be a vet and that doesn't really match up with the real thing? Is that an issue as well? I think in my experience, um, I've come across a lot of vets, whether they're starting out in their studies or new graduates that haven't expected that, you know, well, I'm working with animals and that's, you know, what I'm passionate about. I want to work with animals for whatever their reasons may be but then not necessarily having the realisation that, but hang on, there's still got to be a human that's bringing that animal you know, into the clinic or is looking after that animal if they're working rurally. And so I think that is part of the problem that, that we do see is that they may not have that full understanding. And again, that's been in my experience, I've spoken to people, that I didn't realise that this issue was so bad or that I would have to actually deal with people, you know, and that's where the conflict is and it's one of the top five contributing factors to the high rate of suicide, you know, dealing with those clients who are difficult, you know, and then they might not be so nice. You know, that can be the snide remarks, the bullying, the emotional blackmail, uh, the abuse. You know, there's a whole range of um, things that are going on that can come into the whole yeah, that's difficult client aspect. That's really interesting that a lot of the issues are not to do with the animals, they're to do with the people. What can the rest yes. of us do to support vets? Like what would you be what would be your advice there? I think probably the number one thing would be be kind. <laughs> because, you know, in most cases the vets and the nurses, you know, the staff there, they're doing the best they can with what they have to look after, you know, your, your pet, your animal, you know, if it might be a rural animal or um, a farm animal, whatever, it's still, that animal still means something to someone. And so being kind, like it costs nothing to genuinely say thank you. And if you can't be nice, then, you know, maybe just refrain from those snide remarks because they can really, really hurt. Um, you know, a lot of the negative comments that we see or... You know, there's, there's, well, there's <laughs> unlimited comments that are out there. You know, you're just in it for the money. Uh, you know, they're really hurtful. They, you know, they genuinely want to do the best that they can, um, and they're working in a profession that is incredibly hard. Um, and I think, like some of the comments, um, you know, that were in the, the story just earlier, were around. You know, there, there's no Medicare funding for pets. There's no pedicare. You know, they they don't charge or they, they don't have the control over what pet insurance costs and claims are or what the pharmaceuticals costs are. So there's no subsidy for the pharmaceuticals and, you know, we can't necessarily compare it to human medicine that is subsidised, you know, either through Medicare or the PBS. 
to a, an industry where we don't get that same level of government subsidy, um, you know, that's available. And that's exactly what we're hearing on our text line as well. Look, it's a really complex issue, but it's a really big and important one. Dr Nadine Hamilton from the Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet campaign, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks very much, Dave. And I've got a lot of messages still coming through. Somebody says, I'm not a vet, but I live with two young vets and I work at an animal shelter. I can vouch for that burnout and compassion fatigue and fracture more than just the vet nurses and all the supporting staff as well. Somebody else, my dad's a vet. People take out their grief towards their animals dying on vets every single day. It's a huge, huge mental strain. Hack. The intent of the rainbow colour application of our jersey was to represent a diversity and inclusion. They are not wearing the jersey as it conflicts with their cultural and religious beliefs. I don't know why they wanted to promote this, to be honest. But hey, these players don't have a problem wearing a sponsor on their jersey that's a gambling company. Some people feel strongly about certain things and that's that's fine. What do we gain from forcing them to wear that rugby jersey? The idea of forcing someone to have to be inclusive is ridiculous. That should be something that they want to do anyway. On Triple J. Yeah, it's been hard to miss this story that's blown up in sport today, specifically in NRL. It's all about a pride jersey that Manly Sea Eagles players are going to wear on Thursday night. But seven Manly players are boycotting the match. They've refused to play due to their religious and personal beliefs. Manly's coach Des Hasler today apologised to the LGBTQIA plus community, but he also said that players and coaching staff weren't told about this jersey before. And he said that that's the club's mistake. Look, there's a lot to unpack here. Everyone's weighing in. Even the Prime Minister's been asked about it. I want to know what you think about this one. Particularly interested if you're queer and an NRL fan, maybe you play yourself. How's this made you feel? Let me know. 0439757555. First, though, let's talk to Patrick Skeen. He's a sport and culture commentator. He knows a lot about driving diversity and inclusion in sport. Hey, Patrick, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. When you saw all of this blow up in the news, what did you think? I thought this was the conversation that was that had to happen. It was coming. Israel Folau, uh, we forget, was a rugby league player before he went to rugby union and the Izzy Folau uh, issue blew over. But there was a red, red flag there. All the players uh, stood by Israel Folau. They hashtagged, they supported him. So this was coming in rugby league and... Manly's marketing team, without consultation, um, effectively to sell jerseys, has, um, you know, there's been no LGBTIQ strategy or anything done by Manly. So, you know, you actually have to get permission to do these things as well. They've gone off ad hoc without telling players, without telling the board. Uh, the jersey sold out, so they got their they got their cash. But, um, you know, there, there's a lot of damage control and Des Hasler had to come out, the coach had to come out today and, and make significant apologies to everyone involved. Yeah, we've heard a lot of comments uh, about this today from a lot of different people in the rugby league community outside of it as well. And we're getting some thoughts on the text line. Pete from Newey says, the reality is that most people in the footy community have no problem with gay people, but we also don't see the need to have a pride round, just play football. Another person says, weird how on religious grounds some small colour, harmless stripes offend, but a large advertisement for gambling which has proven to destroy lives and against most religions is okay. And Michael in Canberra says, my view on the rainbow jersey is that I'm inclusive of anybody and everybody except those who aren't. I'm talking to Patrick Skeen. Patrick, I wanted to ask, I mean, you compared it to the Israel, well, some people, sorry, have compared it to the Israel Folau scandal and you said, look, there were warning signs there when we saw lots of rugby league um, players come out and support Israel Folau. Why is
is this more of an issue, does it seem, for the NRL and not for the AFL? Like the AFL's got a pride round. The NRL now, courtesy of the 50% of, of its players are Pacific and Māori heritage, and you add that to 10% of Aboriginal, so you've got 60% of NRL players now. AFL has 12% Aboriginal and really negligible from the Pacific community. If, if, if there were 50% Pacific players in the AFL and things that came up that culturally clashed with that, the majority of the playing group, they'd have the same problems. It's not the case. But the, the NRL is a majority Christian game now. There are prayer circles on, uh, on the ground after games and uh, it hasn't really been addressed at all because uh, by being inclusive, sometimes you can be exclusive as well. Is it a Christian game or is it a, a secular game? These are things the NRL is going to have to wrestle with. But AFL doesn't have, it's still a heavily majority Anglo-Celtic sport and the Anglo-Celts are the minority in the NRL. Right. And so what do you think should have been done differently if this was to happen? Um, we had Des Hasler say, look, the people weren't told about it. There should have been more consultation. Is that what you think should have happened? Getting Polynesians uh, to agree to support in any shape or fashion um, LGBTI is going to be a medium-term journey of education. Elders need to be brought in, mentors need to be brought in because that's the decision-making process of the extended family structure of the Polynesian communities. They don't, you'll see in contract negotiations and player signings, the parent will be right there. The parent chooses which club, the parent chooses which offer. So just blindsiding these guys on a Monday night and said, hey, you're wearing a jersey for for, for gay round, that's terrible. Josh Alloway, one of the players, has public, publicly said he's going to become a pastor. And on a Monday night, he gets ambushed and says, you know, future pastor, wear this. And it's he, he got put in an untenable position. So the blame fairly and squarely absolutely sits with the Manly Marketing Department because you don't play around with diversity and inclusion. You bring in experts and you do it properly. You don't box tick and get jersey sales. It's a serious thing. You're playing with people's lives. And you just don't do it as a, as a marketing stunt for all the good intentions. Um, I haven't heard a peep out of them about their strategy or anything. They've just popped up with a pink jersey out of nowhere in the middle of women's rounds. It's got ill timing and it's classic Scotty from marketing thought bubble stuff that hasn't been thought and consulted and was just sort of captain's called through. It's terrible. On the text line, Claire says, surely during a time when it's important to be open-minded and inclusive, we can respect the player's right not to wear the jersey if what it symbolises does not align with their beliefs. Bridget's also texted in. She says she's a former Manly fan. The NRL issue's disgusting. Those players play for the fans and the fans want inclusivity. Spoiled, overpaid bigots, they should be ashamed. Another person, Maddie in Newcastle, says... It's a job. At work, we aren't allowed to let our personal values and beliefs affect our work or the people we work with. These guys are on over a million a year. They don't want to do it. Hire someone who will. I just want to know quickly, Patrick, do you think that this controversy is going to set back pride initiatives in rugby league more broadly now at other clubs, the NRL more broadly? I think that's the initial danger. But Peter Volandis has come out and, and doubled down and said they're looking at a pride round. Uh, next year, so that's going to precipitate a mass confrontation with 50% of his player base, and the world will be watching. It'll become, you know, a really unbe- unbelievable piece of of theatre. Uh, at the end of it all, the sad thing is, it's the LGBTIQ community that suffers, while these uh, other two groups seem to be, uh, you know, playing out. And also, all the LGBTIQ people I've spoken to today, none of them have asked for a pride round as well. 
So I'd just like Volandis before he ups this, which could, you know, increase the polarisation abuse of the LGBT. I'd really like him, Peter Volandis, to to consult with the community and, and, and learn the nuances of what's a very complex thing. All right. We'll leave it there with you, writer, culture commentator Patrick Skeen. Thanks for joining us on Hack. My pleasure. We're going to go to somebody else now. Someone talking a lot about this today was former Manly player Ian Roberts. He was the first NRL player to come out openly as gay in 1995. Here's what he had to say about what the jersey means. It isn't a thing of exclusivity. Um, It isn't any of that. It's just about welcoming and saying that the LGBTIQA plus community are part of the greater community and you are welcome here. Someone else who can speak to why representation in sport is important is Andrew Purchase. Now, Andrew started Australia's first gay and inclusive rugby union team, the Sydney Convicts. You might have seen them play. Maybe you've seen them at Mardi Gras. Andrew, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, no problem. Good evening. Are you disappointed with how this has all been handled? Uh, clearly, you know, Manly could have handled a, a lot better. As your, as, your, as your previous speaker said, anyone who's getting involved in... Uh, in, in inclusion and diversity needs to be it needs to be done in a very organised and thoughtful fashion, and it does appear that this has been kind of rushed through and not the right amount of planning being put in, put in place. Um, I think that actually, mainly more broadly, apart from the implementation process, uh, they should be uh, we, we we should thank them that they are that they're wanting to go out on and, and go out and promoting LGBTI inclusion. They just probably need to do it in a better way. Uh, and I would kind of hopefully kind of stress that people should be looking at the uh, the rest of the players who are wearing the jersey and um, we should be focusing on them. And, and these pride rounds are important. I think they are important to actually indicate and to demonstrate to the LGBTI community, one, that they're welcome in the sport, second, that fans are welcome to come and come and watch uh and also you know there are gay players and gay and lesbian players transgender players uh playing playing this sport and 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 the rugby league want to make it welcoming to them as well we're still hearing stories andrew about how hard it is for players in all kinds of sports to come out not just here in australia overseas as well in the nfl do you think society thinks that we're a lot further ahead than we actually are yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that we've obviously there's been enormous progress made in the last ten years, um, both in the corporate sphere, also in the sporting world. Obviously, we've had sort of the same-sex marriage debate, uh, which was problematic in some senses, but there's certainly a lot a lot greater acceptance in, more broadly in the community. But I think the fact that we have had we've got these seven players who are refusing to wear the jerseys indicate that there are still significant pockets of the community in which there are serious concerns, and depending upon your socioeconomic, uh, your cultural background, the communities uh, and the communities you're living in, it can be a very different experience to what people might be seeing kind of in the mainstream. So I think there are certainly pockets in which there are problems and that kind of, that, 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 that sort of triumphs and sort of indicates there's still a lot of work that needs to be done uh, broadly across both at the elite level of sport, but also at the grassroots level to try and encourage, uh, to try and encourage inclusion and diversity uh, in, in its broader sense. And what kind of difference does it make to see players who aren't part of the queer community support LGBTQIA plus people? Yeah, look, I think it's it's absolutely essential. I mean, the, the, the role that allies play, which is kind of what we call them, is actually really critical in terms of a, a, a lot of the... the activities which happen in diversity and inclusion. Those who aren't necessarily part of the marginalised community but recognise that um, that there is no reason at all to, to 
to stop them actually in, being involved and enjoying the huge uh, the huge um, enjoyment that people get out of sport. And I think that that's, you know, in the main, I think in the mainstream, we, we do have an enormous, that, that most people do agree that these sports should be inclusive. I mean, and this is not really a political act. I mean, it's basically, as Ian said, the the this, the pride jersey is about saying that we're inclusive of people who want to play rugby league, and rugby league needs to be an inclusive sport. And I would actually, I would, uh, I, I would encourage that the rugby league should look at seriously. Oh, and we seem to have lost Andrew there. We were about to wrap it up anyway. Andrew Purchase from the Sydney Convicts there. And we are hearing from you as well. Jazz from Manly says, as a queer person, this is so disappointing and disgusting. Religion states love your neighbour and anyone who argues otherwise is using religion as an excuse. It's just homophobia. Hack. The politicians are back in Canberra and the 47th Parliament will this week get down to business. On Triple J. Yeah. That's right, Parliament's back. Politicians packed their lunchboxes this morning to head to work in Canberra. So get ready, more drama, scandal, fireworks in the 47th Parliament. We got new politicians, we got new legislation and, of course, we got our political reporter, Claudia Long, there amongst it. Hey, Claudia, how are you feeling? Hey, Dave, I'm feeling good. You ready back. for it? We're back, baby. What's, back. what's been happening today? Heaps. So it's been really busy, Dave. So we've had the opening of the new parliament. There's so much that goes into this, but it all starts off with a welcome to country and then a smoking ceremony, which goes from the Great Hall, which is right in the you know centre of where you enter parliament, to the big forecourt out the front. And, you know, Parliament House is located on Ngunnawal and Nambri country. And here's some of that welcome to country by Nambri Ngunnawal custodian Paul House. Oh, I'm not sure that was the right audio, Claudia. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry about no, that. No, I think that was my fault. But, yeah, there was a beautiful opening and there was also a protest as well. Yeah, that's right. So climate targets are really on everyone's mind here because the government is introducing legislation on that tomorrow. So we know that Labor's proposing a 43% reduction. They've negotiated with the Greens and crossbenchers that those targets can really only go up from here. They can't be wound back. Those negotiations are still ongoing. You know, the Greens say that a big sticking point for them in particular is that Labor is still approving some new coal and gas projects. And look, as you just heard just now, there's it's not just politicians talking about climate. There's been young people protesting here in the building today. So that was the Tomorrow Movement. They're a group that are fighting for better jobs and services and a safe climate. They were speaking at the front of Parliament, but you just heard them protesting right in the main foyer, um, just as they were being dragged away by security, or sorry, asked to leave and kind of being ushered out by security and police. Yeah, very hectic scenes there. Look, there's a lot of new faces in Parliament, right? Like, who, who are the new people? Yeah, it's really exciting because, you know, this is one of the most diverse parliaments we've ever had as well. And historically, the parliament just really hasn't reflected our community that it's meant to be serving, like, at all. Um, But there's a number of glass ceilings, really, that are being broken today. There's a record number of First Nations representatives in the Senate and the House of Representatives. We've got the first hijab-wearing Muslim senator, more women, more young people under 35. You know, I reckon we'll probably be hearing from them here on Hack, too, throughout this term. Yeah, hopefully. And there's also big bits of legislation legislation and policy that everyone's talking about as well. 
Yeah, I think that main one is really just the climate, you know, like um, we had basically the climate change election that everyone was saying we would have for a number of years and we finally got it. You know, there was a pretty decisive um, rejection of what the coalition had been doing in that space. We've seen the election of a number of independents to the crossbench who are really passionate about climate change, about taking stronger action in that area. So that's going to be the big one for this week, I reckon. And how does it feel as a political reporter? You're getting ready to go again. Is everyone sort of pumped? Have they had a bit of a rest? Or does it feel like, oh, no, not this again? I'm pumped. I'm <laughs> pumped. I reckon we're all a bit pumped. And, you know, there's so much pomp and ceremony that goes into a day like this too. And I think everyone is just glad to be back and actually getting something underway. And, you know, we can start looking at policy now that all the fancy stuff with, you know, the opening of the parliament, like we've got the big gold mace and the usher of the black rod, like there's guys in fancy suits, there's a gun salute, like... Yeah. Now that that's all kind of done, um, we can actually kind of get back into looking at all the policy and things like that. And it's going to be a huge term, right? Like we've got um, Labor's priorities like, uh, you know, the voice to parliament and climate change, like, you know, potentially really huge stuff that we're going to have to dig into. So it's going to be a really big one. There's a whole lot that's going to be blowing up soon in that space. And we know you're going to keep us covered. Hack political reporter Claudia Long, thanks so much for filling us in. Thanks. See ya. Hack. On Triple J. Yeah, it's all happening in Canberra. A huge thanks to our political reporter, Claudia Long. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.